0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you, Phil Collins, for taking me back to that special place. That's I don't care anymore from 1983. But it remains ever so relevant today when you look at Americans' relationship with the stock market. Don't care Equities are at record highs. The Dow recently broke 17,000. Heck, it's safe to read your brokerage statement again. Meanwhile, corporate balance sheets runneth over with cash. The IPO market is so hot, you could take Oldsmobile public. Indeed, investors don't seem to care, with market participation levels tanking. What gives? We ask a 50-year Wall Street veteran, my aunt's investment club, and a day-trading doorman from New York. What a throwback. That's the meaning of life, and so much more on Full Disclosure. But first, the news. Full Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you so much for joining us. We are here with Marshall Akoff, Managing Director at Silvercrest Asset Management a near half-century veteran on Wall Street. He started back in 1966. Where, where was the Dow back then, Marshall? Well, 700 think, and change? I think
1: it was about 744 And it's
0: now above 17000 just to give you some uh, contrast. And Marshall told me he was doing Lou Rukeyser back in 1974, <laughs> uh, just to kind of timestamp all this. That was the era of uh, the nifty-fifty and gold and oil shock. So you've seen it all. I've seen a lot. How, how does this era compare to you? It's clearly uh, one where the panic, you can't say, is pronounced. But in spite of this, uh, the euphoria of the numbers, 17,000, trillions of dollars of market capitalization added since March of 2009, no one seems much interested. There's a stat, I think, according to the Pew Research Foundation, that some 53 percent of Americans avoid the market completely.
1: Yes. I, in fact, it's not unusual— but it's been a long time since we've seen a situation quite like this. What we've seen is an extended period of very low volatility. That is to say, we haven't had a meaningful correction in the stock market. More than
0: 1,000 days, I see. Oh,
1: at least, at least. And uh, at the same time, the volume in the market, the number of shares bought and sold, continues to be relatively low. Normally, when a market approaches its top, One of the things you see is a much higher volume. You also see a much more narrow market dominated by a few large, well-known companies. We don't see that at all. We see a very egalitarian market, a very broad market. That's a healthy market. What do you ascribe this to? I think in reality, there are two big positives for stocks. One, there really isn't any alternative when you think about it, particularly for income-oriented individuals. So a lot of the income-oriented types of stocks like MLPs, even preferred Master stock, limited partnerships. Exactly. Right. These have been swept along where normally in a typical late bull market, there might not be as much interest in that, certainly. So the income orientation has probably helped the breadth.
0: Now, the argument on the other side, though, is that the Federal Reserve for more than five years has been keeping its fat thumb on the scale – Zero interest rate policy throwing more than $3 trillion at the problem uh, just to inflate any asset, be it real estate or corporate bonds or junk bonds. Uh, Other people are saying that this is a a very loosey-goosey and promiscuous market. If you're a junk issuer, it's never been this good. You can be an IPO of a a fly-by-night internet concept or you can be a WhatsApp that sells to Facebook for $17 billion despite having no meaningful profit. Uh, We've seen this story before. I think a lot of skeptics will argue and it will end just like it did
1: in 2000. Well, it may, but I'm not sure we see quite the degree of excesses at this point. There's no question that the the Federal Reserve, when they implemented quantitative easing, has provided a lot of excess liquidity. And with economies in the world growing relatively slowly, or not at all, then that excess liquidity finds its way into uh, the markets. And that has been a big factor driving the markets up. Now, having said that, People are saying, well, what happens when the QE ends? When When the Federal Reserve
0: pulls back the punch Exactly,
1: and they're indicating now that in October they're no longer going to be buying treasury bonds. Well, so what? <laughs> no, the Fed is not tightening. But the argument they're just is not it, as easy as if they once were.
0: If they're not there as an artificial buyer buying tens of billions of dollars of bonds every month and chasing people out of the low-income security of bonds into stocks and, right. and riskier assets, then uh, it stands to reason. And we saw a scare last year when the Fed – Uh, in in the waning days of Bernanke, merely suggested, telegraphed that maybe, possibly, mayhaps, may pull back a couple of ice cubes out of this punch bowl, and the market freaked out relatively. It was down 5%. When this actually happens, the morning after, forget about quantitative easing being taken away, but Mm -hmm. when Janet Yellen has to come out and say, hey, we're taking up rates, we're actually taking up
1: rates, something that hasn't been done since pre-crisis, how is the world going to react? I think the markets definitely will be more volatile when we get to that stage. As we saw last year, and we've seen a little bit here recently, the markets get very anxious when they hear the quantitative easing is ending. They they get very anxious when they start to see or they think they see interest rates going up. I mean, looking at interest rates, we probably are not going to see short-term interest rates, which are – driven by Federal Reserve policy, rise until sometime in 2015. So the the issue there is, is it going to be the fall of 2015? Well, Marshall, why can't we see a
0: 1994 type situation? Back then, we're coming out of the early 90s recession and the SNL crisis. And the Greenspan Fed kept rates artificially low and blindsided Wall Street by having to hike them. In advance it caused a lot of carnage you remember you were there in the middle of it mm-hmm. firms failed uh, there were more junk bond catastrophes happening
1: what's the stop history from repeating in that respect there's no question that there can be some dislocations if,
0: <coughs> if that sounds very green spanian the way you just put that by the way
1: very <laughs> gnomic well thank you there's no question that there will be <laughs> but <coughs> looking ahead interest rates are likely to go up this is the most advertised expectation one can look for. This is one of the reasons why many investors have not been participating in the markets, quite frankly, because they think, well, interest rates going to go up and it's the end of the world. In fact, if you look at the history, interest rates rise when the economy is performing more strongly. Earnings are rising more rapidly, all of which are good for stocks. So – If interest rate's going up, it doesn't necessarily mean that stocks are going to go down.
0: Sure. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're here with Marshall a Managing Director at Silvercrest Asset Management. He's been on Wall Street for nearly 50 years. And when he joined back in 1966, we were talking about this uh, before we we started today. You know, the market went nowhere between 1966 and 1982, and a lot of people – You remember the infamous Business Week cover, Death of Equities. As an asset class after the 70s, it was beyond moribund. Nobody believed in it. Inflation was the boogeyman back then similarly people are looking back at the past decade and a half the past 14 years they had their hearts broken after 2000 the last time really anybody cared the last time my iranian relatives mm-hmm. in los angeles were calling me and asking about cisco e stock number one you know <laughs> uh, then they got they got hammered uh in in the in the enron and WorldCom crises obviously 9-11 happened and then just as people hesitatingly came back in 2007 just in time for the financial crisis to cut stocks in half again. And they're kind of saying, fool me thrice, no way.
1: Sure. There's no question that between 1966 and 1982, the markets didn't go anywhere. Part of that was a correction of valuation, particularly the so-called nifty-fifty. But at the end of the day, it was the Fed fighting inflation that really stalled out the stock market. Okay, Fast forward to 2000 up to, say, 2000. Nine, market really didn't go anywhere and the reason for that at the end of the day ultimately was the financial system and the financial crisis. It wasn't inflation. It was a totally different animal. The market since 2009 has done rather well. In fact, the S&P 500 in nominal terms has made new highs, all-time highs. The Dow Jones Industrials has done the same thing. However, the NASDAQ hasn't gotten back there yet. It's 50,
0: It's 15% off its year 2000 high, but in real inflation-adjusted terms, it's nowhere
1: near those exactly, levels. Exactly, exactly. And in and
0: fact, people, people in 2009 who were keeping track could say, well, the market nominally got cut in half, but if you were to look at it in real terms, it was back to levels when you first started on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking LBJ-era levels. And that's people right. are like, what's my motivation? That's, that's a, almost a half-century missed opportunity.
1: That's right. Having said that, When you look at the equities market, some equities benefit from rising inflation. That is to say, all of a sudden, they have pricing power. And that was the case in the 70s. In the 70s, things like chemicals and steels and papers, oil, did extremely well because they had pricing power. Other stocks that did not have pricing power, like foods and utilities, were very poor performers.
0: When was the last time in this country we felt inflation with a capital I? you know wage price spiral inflation there all you know, all all kinds of of uh, inflation as you mentioned right. are not alike exactly. there could be benign inflation where exactly. companies are feeling their oats and ratcheting up prices, and people are getting a modest to, to, to solid wage gains, and everything exactly. is keeping a pace. But there could also be the perceived inflation when the Fed realizes there's way too much money in the system. Right. It has to slam the brakes, has to sop up all this money, and take up short term rates in a very jarring manner. Right. What, what kind do you think emanating from this unprecedented experiment of, of $3 trillion of monetary <laughs> easing? That's, that's the big unknown.
1: Well, the, the important thing to understand is that the economies growth is well below what its potential might be, or expressed in a different way, the underlying resources that drive the economy, plant, individuals, uh, labor. Labor, at this point, the employment situation is improving, okay? But we are not operating a fully employed economy. Normally, A bull market in the stock market, normally the end of the economy cycle, comes when your resources are fully employed, which means and brings more inflation and higher interest rates courtesy of the Federal Reserve. We're simply not there yet.
0: Why is it that companies, they're clearly seeing their balance sheets haven't looked this hale ever Borrowing costs are laughable. I mean, if you're a company like Caterpillar or McDonald's, you can issue 30-year debt on really low terms. Mm -hmm. I think I saw the University of Pennsylvania a few years ago issued 100-year debt. Mm -hmm. They're like, this is so good, we have to lock it in. Sure. Uh, You know, housing speculators out there, you talk about all cash purchases. Um, Why aren't these companies then saying, wow, this is really good and it's time for us to make an investment in human capital?
1: It's a good question. The large companies, first of all, much of their cash or their liquidity is actually outside the U.S. What they're doing with some of that capital is acquiring other companies. We would hope that they would be spending more money for plant and people, capital spending. But they will argue in this country, this is, again, the larger companies, that, well, there's just too many regulations and taxes should be lower and – whatever. So they're just not moving ahead. It's it's kind of interesting because we see little companies, particularly in some regions of this country, really are green shoots coming up they're not worried about regulations. They're not worried about taxes. They have a great idea and they want to grow the it, idea. It seems
0: like microbreweries and frozen yogurt places are
1: <laughs> exactly. companies popping up. They, they would be good examples of that. And social media strategists, exactly. frankly. it a market for them. They're not concerned with regulations, all this other stuff. But eventually, you're going to have more capital spending. And you're, with the capital spending, that's going to be a boom for employment as well. A lot of that capital spending is going to come in some of the new areas, robotics, artificial intelligence, that type of thing. Uh, uh, Many of the biotech companies, for example, they're going to have to build facilities to expand and so forth. Most people don't think of that. They think in terms of capacity, oh, it's a steel company or a paper company or something like that. You have to think about these new industries that are still in the early stages of development and expansion. They're going to need facilities. They're going to need more people. And,
0: and it's so still forth. a buyer's market for talent. Wages are depressed. You can kind of name your price, name exactly. your benefits or lack thereof. Exactly. Uh, this, is, this is still a one economy where it's unusually free to hire and fire people.
1: Exactly, because you <laughs> – It's an economy where if you're educated and focused in an area, you can earn a very good wage. But if you're not, if you just have general skills, you you just find it hard to keep up. Or you could be
0: someone like me who has a face for radio and is trying to make a a go of this, right? (laughs) (laughs) And if this doesn't work, I'll open a falafel stand or something, I figured. So let me ask you – Marshall, you you obviously heard PIMCO come out with the new normal prophecy in 2009. And in your vaunted career, you've seen variations of this over the past 40, 50 years. There's been a different point in time where everybody's come out and said this asset class is dead. Mm -hmm. Stocks. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no way that companies can – Get their act together, uh, uh, the idea. And it was very plausible in 2009 with that they're going to have to impair their shareholders just to raise funds to make it in a depression-like economy uh, where people are not going to be consuming. Somehow they pulled a the rabbit out from a hat and uh, times are flush again with a lot of help from the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you see as kind of um, – was there any point in our history where it was normal or any part in your career when you look back and say that the economy, if it just keeps healing, it will reach that point again? Because you could look back to the late 90s and say there was a lot of dot-com and internet mm-hmm. fluff. You could look to the, the aughts and say a lot of that was a credit and mortgage bubble. Mm-hmm. What is the true kind of equilibrium mm-hmm. staying power of our economy?
1: Well, over a long period of time, the U.S. economy – grows roughly in the area of 2 to 3%. There have been periods in the 1980s and 90s were a good example where for a number of years you were growing faster than that. There are also periods when you're growing under that trend line as well. I think the reality is that the growth in the workforce has come down over time. We're getting the, the baby boomers getting older and so forth, and they're leaving the workforce. So instead of looking at the uh, labor force growing at one and a half percent, which is what we used to look at, we're now looking at 0.8. So in order to complete the equation of growth, then what is productivity going to be? Well, productivity in order to meet the two to three percent is probably got to be close to two percent. Now, we've done better than 2%. Uh, certainly in the late 90s, we were doing better than 2% thanks to the fact that we had a lot of technology innovation coming along and be put into the economy. It was a big, big help in many ways. But at this point, I think you're basically looking at productivity somewhere in the area of one5 So that basically gives us an underlying growth in the economy, about 2.5%, which longer term is probably in line with the average, but as we go out over the next couple of decades, that rate of growth is probably going to come down further. That doesn't mean that there won't be innovation in the economy. The great thing about the U.S. is we are a nation of innovators. Other countries are not so fortunate. As long as we continue to be innovators, which will help produce more productivity, I think we will see a good stock market.
0: There you go. Marshall Akoff, Managing Director at Silvercrest Asset Management, closing out that segment with some qualitative easing, as it were, (laughs) holding our hands, telling us it's going to be okay after this period of disruption and dislocation and disbelief and not caring anymore. So take heart. Thank you so much, Marshall, for joining us. Full disclosure, we'll be right back. Support for this program was provided by the Martin Agency. Headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, the Martin Agency has consistently been ranked among the top advertising firms by national media and industry leaders alike. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Today we're talking investor sentiment, or the lack thereof, despite record markets and all sorts of other dazzling stats that you see on the nightly news. But, meh, um, as many would say, we are here today with the Women's Investing Club of Richmond. Uh, otherwise known as Wicker. Founded in 1996, it has 20 members. Uh, 1996 was the year that Alan Greenspan called the rational exuberance, by the way. But these wonderful ladies, including my dear Aunt Kathy, have persisted. Uh, the president is Mary Lee Cantor. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Glad
0: to be here. Thank you. Kathy Plotkin, my wonderful aunt, she helped me move down to Virginia, and I got this warm welcome from the Women's Investing Club of Richmond. I showed up at one of their uh, planning dinners, and uh, Mary Lee Cantor wowed us with this intrepid research about wireless antenna consolidation, and all these wonderful women squeezed my cheeks and encouraged (laughs) me to stay in Richmond. So I said you should be called the Cheek Squeezing Investing Club, but uh, you prefer wicker, I guess, right?
3: Well, at this point, yes. Cheek-squeezing might uh, keep uh, new members from joining.
0: Oh, but you guys are rather <laughs> exclusive. I mean, 20 people, you have a pretty high hurdle. You've been at this since 1996, a period where lots of people have dropped out. And we see stats saying that market participation is, is back down to levels. Uh, big research foundations say that we haven't seen levels this low since the 1991 recession.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, we joined it uh, with the understanding that we were going to be in it for the long haul. The idea was to, as our consulting broker told us, that we should buy tuna fish, which would be uh, meaning that we would buy companies that we were familiar with. Why not with Gefilte their the
0: fish on Kathy? Why not Gefilte it fish? It could
3: have been Gefilte fish with this group. but uh, The value she,
0: investor would buy the Gefilte fish. <laughs>
3: ah, yeah, well, it's it's certainly been a long term <laughs> commodity.
2: But I think one of my reasons for getting in the club, and I joined a little bit later than Kathy, who happened to have been a founder, was I wanted to learn more. And I felt that this was a, different, a great opportunity to learn, to find out about different types of stocks, different companies with which I was had no familiarity at all. This was a great way to learn new things by women who were my contemporaries, and I greatly appreciated that.
0: And how, pray tell, do you learn? Where do you get your research from, for example?
2: We get it from the National Investment Club that we belong to, a national society. I also go online and find other resources, and each of us has to investigate a stock and report on a stock twice a year with 20 members. and. We're giving different sectors every month to learn about, in addition to reviewing our old companies that we've invested in, so that we remain aware of every stock and how it is doing from month to month, and whether we should keep it, increase our shareholdings, or sell it.
0: Now, how many stocks are in your portfolio right now, Kathy?
2: I'd say we probably have
3: close to. 30, 35. 35 Yeah. I mean, there are some folks in the in the group who would like to see us knock it down to 20. So we would each have one that we followed. But
0: uh, so all these people, in addition to being grandmothers and stopping me in the grocery store and squeezing my cheeks, have to follow companies, absolutely. have to follow these companies day after day, like Wall Street analysts.
3: Well, I'm not sure that we all follow it day by day, but we certainly follow it uh, uh Probably weekly or, or uh, for those of us who are a little less uh, dedicated, we might just do it when it comes time to report on our stock that we hold um, or the new stock that we, uh, in a sector that we've chosen
2: to look at um, that month. If you'd watch it every day, you'd go crazy. Oh, it's up today. We better buy some more. It's down tomorrow. We need to over. And the overall picture is much better than going crazy. You have to be a day trader to do that.
0: Well, uh, people could not help but watch it intensely. If you go back to March of two thousand nine, when the market hit lows not seen since 1996 when you started. And if you take it, we were talking to Marshall Aikoff about this, in inflation adjusted terms, LBJ level mm-hmm. terms. And I had coworkers at Business Week, grandmothers pulling me aside saying, listen, kid, you didn't see the depression. This, this could be a 15, 20 year reset. I got to get out. I got to worry about my retirement. How in the world did you keep the faith? Take me back to those trying days of spring 2009 and the financial crisis.
3: To me, I think that there, there are two issues that go into that. One is we had committed to being into this for the long term. We were buying stocks that we felt we would hold on to for five to
0: ten years. Uh, we weren't trying to... Yeah, but you ladies are young. I was at the crash at 29. I mean, isn't that, a, isn't that an arrogant thing to say that, you know, it could have been a big reset? It could have been, but, I mean, we... Um, You know, part of the
3: reason, I think, is, you know, we invest a certain amount each month individually. And it's not an insignificant amount, but for most of us, this is kind of disposable funds that we, I think, play is the wrong word, but use for this purpose. And um, we've seen things go up. We've seen things go down a bit. But we also have been very conscious of diversifying our portfolio. So we don't hold, you know, too much in tech stocks or too much in retails or too much in other, you know, that kind of thing. So, and to a certain degree, we were a little bit insulated.
0: Was there anybody that got up during the financial crisis and said, ladies, we got to double down. This is a once in a lifetime buying opportunity.
2: Well, that was definitely brought up. And they were worried about should we get out of it or our stockbroker that is at all our meetings that we have monthly. And she said, now "Continue to push. It's a great time to buy stocks that are down that you have very confident in, and they'll go up, which we did. A lot of us maybe were very hesitant, but I'd like to continue." With what Kathy said, "A lot of us that money would have gone to go to lunch or go buy a new, another piece of makeup or another shirt." But we put the money in, and we've made money, and we've made a sizable amount of money because of it. So I don't think any of us have felt any dent because we have given money, our dues, to our investment club.
0: Now, your individual nest eggs are elsewhere, I imagine, in an IRA or or former 401K plans, pensions? Or whatever.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we all – and and a lot of us, I think, um, have – gained knowledge we usually report on three stocks a month and we may decide not to buy any of them but people sitting around the table plenty of them have said you know what i'm going to get that for my personal holdings Absolutely. so people have taken the knowledge that they've learned in the club and used it for their own personal investing purposes and i think a lot of people have done pretty well
2: I think that's absolutely true. And when Facebook was talked about and we wanted to get in the beginning of Facebook, I was one one of the few that was arguing against it. Are you on Facebook? Yes, we do own Facebook.
0: Yeah. But but are you both on Facebook? Oh, absolutely. That's where I see my grandchildren.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now you would think, oh, Grandma, are you on that? And then my daughter or son will say – Grandma, I don't get on that. There's too much stuff going on. I don't need to know when I'm going to the auto repair shop to get my car fixed or where I get new tires. That's not necessary. We but don't it, But do- anyhow, I was against buying it. Because I thought it was too high when it went up to 30. Sure. And now it went down, and we've made quite a bit of money, and I'm glad we did. But I voted against buying it.
0: Mary Lee Cantor saves the day yet again.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but at the same time, it's the majority that decides what we're going to do.
0: That's a lot of pressure to have to come into these meetings in addition to having a wonderful spread. I remember the food was delicious. Um, And, you know, you have minutes and there's parliamentary procedure. Somebody has to get up and make a presentation. So do you have any sort of conviction right now, either of you, uh, something that you'd like to present to our dear listeners, considering that you're going to be regulars on the show, your single best idea?
2: Need to think about that for a minute.
3: The single best idea. You're going to keep the
0: idea to yourselves. Oh, well, I know. I
3: think the single best idea is A, don't invest more than you can afford to. And B, once you've made a decision about a stock that you're going to buy, stick with it. If it drops $2 the next week, that's not a big deal. It'll go up $4 at some point down the road. Have you thought about money.
0: the school of thought of not investing in stocks at all, just being passively indexed into it? That, listen, I can't possibly. Do better than these pros and these hedge funds out there that are trading by the millisecond that I'm just going to own the market not you know be the market not beat the market
3: yeah I think we do have uh, Pat probably will know better but we our treasurer but we do have an index fund I mean we may even have two that we looked at and you know they're steady performers but we do like to go with some of the new things. Oh, but you
0: guys something. are excitable ladies. You like to play the $5 slots. You leave the no, nickel slots no, for everybody else.
2: <laughs> no, we have no
0: Atlantic R- City for you guys. It's all Bellagio all the time.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. We have an REIT. A A
0: real estate investment investment trust, trust,
2: yes, that a lot of times will say, maybe we should sell it. And I believe, if I'm correct, that they only pay a dividend on their profits that they make. So we might get that once a year. And a lot of the ladies have said, let's sell it. But we're still in there and we're still doing fairly well. And that's because all of us have opinions and do offer them.
0: And bless you for that. Thank you so much for joining us. Mary Lee Cantor, president of the Women's Investing Club of Richmond, accompanied by my dearest aunt, (laughs) Kathy Plotkin, the spiritual leader of the Women's (laughs) Investing Club of Richmond. We look forward to having them on the show. And uh, please audit us and tell us how we're doing. And uh, feel free to pinch my cheeks when you bump into me at the bakery here.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're continuing today with the Women's Investment Club of Richmond. Joining us now are Pat Comas, treasurer for life, and Leslie Greenberg, the past president. Uh, both contemporaries of my dear Aunt Kathy, and will be regulars on our show going forward, and will hopefully keep us honest. Thank you for joining us. Glad Thank to you be for here. Let me ask you something, Leslie. There's a there's a big cosmic question in my mind. We have a the market that's been correction-free now for more than a 1,000 days. People don't remember what a stock pullback is like, and yet they do because they're not pouring into the market. Um, we have cash balances at a record level. You hear about all these frothy internet deals and San Francisco billionaires, and New York is pricing people out of the real estate market. And yet, The stock market, nobody seems to be paying attention to. What makes this rally different from all other rallies, to quote Passover?
4: I really think that the reason our stock club has done as well as it's done for 18 years is because we like to buy things that we know. If we don't know the stock, then we do more investigating so that we learn what the stock is doing and why we need to have that to balance out our portfolios. Pat?
5: Well, I think one of the reasons it's chugging along really well, at least what I'm hearing, is the volumes have been very, very low. You don't have everyone with a inexpensive computer and an inexpensive Internet connection buying tons and tons of stocks. And so it's continued to go up. Uh, We read that fewer than 50 percent of the population really is invested in the stock market. So it doesn't have the breadth and the width that maybe a lot of these other rallies have – Experienced.
0: Are you worried like some potential investors out there? There's Jeremy Grantham. He has a $126 billion hedge fund. The final leg of this market, it's almost a reverse capitulation where people who've been on the sidelines now for six or seven years are finally saying, you know what, I can't deal with it anymore. Dow 17,000, 18,000, I'm getting in. And when all that hot money piles in, that sets up heartbreak.
5: Well, that always happens. Lots of people love to buy at the top because no one's really willing to admit it's a top. It's it's very seductive. You always hear about the people who have made a lot of money investing in widgets and it went really, really high. You never hear about the person who bought at the top and it collapsed until 2007. And And it it
0: happened in 2000, too. Let's not forget people piled into Internet stocks. It's really the last time I remember when people were talking about it, when when people were accosting me at cocktail parties and relatives I didn't even know I had were calling me (laughs) from all around the world. Nothing like that has happened now for 15 years.
5: That's true. Um, I joined the club in about 1998. And... Even though the NAIC, the National Association of Investment Clubs, really called for a rather conservative look at stocks that need to have 10 years worth of history and and all of these other things, we eventually were bitten by the internet bud. And the fact that, you know, Cisco may have had a PE ratio of 84 or what, after a while, you just couldn't not buy these things. And so we bought them. And we got stung. Sure enough, come two thousand, two thousand and one, the bubble popped and we learned the lesson. And the eighteen years our club has been in operation has been a real minefield because it was the internet bubble that collapsed. Then two thousand and nine eleven came along and everything stopped. And what we did, for the first time, we sat back in the early 2000s and thought, you know, this is just something we can't always anticipate what's going to happen. And we began to look back at the blue chip stocks, the good steady-as-you-go stocks, the ones that paid dividends, and there was value in those reinvested dividends. And we started diversifying and having a good core of stocks, And they, of course, felt the 2007 drop, but they have come back. And we are at an all-time high now, too. But we're very cautiously optimistic.
0: So have you upgraded, say, from Olive Garden to fancy Italian restaurants? Has it affected your behavior, your swagger, and that these stocks are doing really well? No, and I think— No offense to Olive Garden. I love Olive Garden. I
4: I think the best part of it all is that we have been so diversified— and we have done the research that we've done to buy the stocks. There have been a few times, like Facebook, for instance, that we bought the IPO. I kept saying uh, it was – I think it was – It
0: was subsequently called face splat because it was so bad, <laughs> but then it's, it's, it broke all-time highs again.
4: It did. It did. But it was something that I said all of us that are on it are, are going to tell you that eventually everybody's going to be on it. And we bought it, and we've done just fine. If something else comes out to challenge Facebook, we might look at that and buy that instead of the It just depends on where we are and where we're thinking with our money. We look very smart, but we've been
0: very lucky. Now, what's your relationship Pat, with bonds, because this has been a kind of an object of fetishy fund flows since the financial crisis. People who said never again in the stock market poured money into anything and everything that was fixed income to the point that it really doesn't make sense right now. They're not open to the idea of credit risk, that things can in fact fall apart
5: on that side of the ledger. So how are you mitigating this? Well, we do not have bonds in the club. It is primarily an equity holding. So we have stayed away from there. NAIC has suggested that we stick to stocks and not get involved in master limited partnerships or bonds or, or anything like that because it makes tax reporting rather dicey at the end of the year. I was hoping for
0: more daredevilly stuff for you guys. You're on Facebook. You buy Facebook. I hope you're telling me a couple of your former members are in jail for insider <laughs> trading. Where's the excitement? <laughs> no. You have, you have Mary Lee Cantor playing the $5 slots, investing in wireless well, some of the things Well,
4: some of the things we decided to do several years ago was to buy local stocks. Um, here in Richmond. Here in Richmond. And uh, the, I think the first local company we had was Performance Food Group. Mm. And I have to tell you the funniest story. So they had their annual meeting, and we said, well, why don't we go? So four of us decided to go. And some of those ladies no longer live in Richmond. But anyway, the four of us, and I think the tallest one of the four of us was five one, And we all ended up coming, and nobody discussed it before, we all ended up wearing black suits. We were all these short little ladies, and we go into the annual meeting of Performance Food Group. They were so excited to have oh, us. Oh, I thought you
0: were going to tell me you raised hell or kneecapped someone.
4: No, no, but we. But they wanted to know why we were there and what we were doing, and we told them, and they were very impressed. The first year, the second year, we brought our friend who's a lot taller than 5'1", and they were even more <laughs> impressed that we were there. And they, it was.
0: Real. I hope you got free breakfast or lunch out of it. Actually,
5: they did give us breakfast. There you go. Didn't they give us they had all sorts of examples of their products. So right. we got a little basket of right. things
0: that they distributed. Wonderful, wonderful. Pat Comas, Treasurer of the Women's Investment Club of Richmond and Leslie Greenberg, past president. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you on the show again. It's a lot you of fun. We us. enjoyed it too. Full disclosure, stay with us. This program is made possible with support from Virginia Commonwealth University. Located in Richmond, Virginia, VCU is a premier public research university focused on academic success. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and please help me wish a happy 31st birthday to our next guest, Abba Jenis, Tanzanian-born day-trading doorman of Westchester, New York. How are you, good sir?
6: I'm good, sir. How are you? I miss you, man. I know. I miss you and the family. How's everybody doing?
0: Everybody's great. Thank you for joining us today via Skype on your birthday. I promise you I will let you go soon, but not before we pick your brain on this peculiar market that you follow closely. As I said, you're 31 today. You have one more semester left, uh, majoring in economics at Lehman College in the Bronx. I pulled up this article of you Uh, in Kiplinger, September 2007. A young immigrant aspires to be a millionaire. As a kid in Tanzania, you grew up dreaming that the route to riches would run through soccer fields. But then you came here to New York and you started getting great investment advice from tenants in the building and people who took the Grand Central train into Wall Street every morning and you've accumulated quite a following and I remember you as the day trading doorman. So uh, that's kind of a relic of the past. Nobody talks about day traders anymore. How do you keep the faith?
6: Well, you have to Stay alive. You can't worry about what other people are saying and you have to know my my dream is to inspire other people, especially for my generation. And also my goal is I want to retire my parents. So one way is day trading because it's also helped me pay my student loans.
0: Sure. Now, but let's not forget, you are royalty in Tanzania. I kid you not. You went there a couple of years ago. I saw the videos. The the village slaughtered a few goats for you. Many people have promised you their daughters as as brides. You could go home and be very rich immediately, and yet you're opting to do this up in the hard scrabbled streets of the Bronx.
6: Well, I, I live in Westchester, so...
0: But you go to school in the Bronx.
6: Yes, I go to school in the Bronx, and the royalty part is not a big thing for me. I'm a very low-key person, if you know me already. I don't mind the royalty treatment, but I prefer being a low-key where I keep so long I'm happy, my family's happy, everybody's well taken care of. That's what matters most to me.
0: And so you are thinking about the future right now. What is your time horizon as a 30, 31-year-old? After all, there are stats from the Pew Foundation and others that market participation is at Lows we haven't seen in several decades. Uh, specifically, um, one stat that says that um, stock ownership by household is shrinking. It's now at 45%, down from more than 65% way back in 2002.
6: Well, you have to understand a lot of people after the market crash, a lot of people got scared with their money. They didn't know who to trust, they didn't know who to leave their money with. So, another problem is what we have now is there's not many people who can educate people. For myself is I've never took my money out. My money stayed where it is. I actually increased buying because it was a good time for buying because I'm young. So for the elder generation is they need the money where they need to retire right away versus people like myself who are still young and I can still work do other things, it's the best opportunity that we never saw before.
0: Well, what do you say to all of our contemporaries who say the market's rigged, it's pointless, even if your cash isn't earning anything, even if bonds are overheated, that that many people just said, you know, forget it, you're not going to fool me three times in
6: 15 years. I, I tell them, the market is the best mechanism ever in the world. I mean, you, we live in this, such an amazing country where the stock market is the greatest thing ever being created, where you put your money and increase up. My 401k is last year was up almost 20%. So where are you going to get extra 20% that you keep adding money still working your nine to five job? Only in America.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Abba in Westchester, New York. He is the beloved day-trading doorman of Westchester. He has one more semester in economics left at Lehman College in the Bronx. What are your plans to maybe port this from a hobby to something more professional? I mean, right now you work your hours at the building and you trade early in the morning or you trade, you you put in mostly options orders. Like, what is the gist of your activity?
6: So let me give you a spec to my day is I get up early morning, 6 uh, o'clock, I'm up. Sometimes actually 5.30, I'm at the gym, come home by eight o'clock, I'll uh, set up my computer ready for the market. I trade from 9.30 to 12.30 or one o'clock sometime, depending on the market, how things are acting up. Uh, my future goal is to be a full-time trader and to replace my income.
0: I, I, I don't understand, what are you trading so early in the morning or what is the edge you have? Are you doing volatility? I trade, I,
6: I trade, I trade options and I trade stocks and I trade uh, technical patterns. I'm more of a technical analyst person.
0: Well, you want things to zig and zag more. And yet we're hearing from our prior uh, several guests that there's really low volatility despite this record market right now.
6: Well, you look at it, the volume hasn't been there for a while, but the market's still climbing up. So the thing that's left is to look at the technical. For me personally, is I look at the technical charting pattern, the tape. I read the tape and the tape is telling me the markets keep going.
0: Now, there are people out there, though, that look at it kind of technicians slash market historians who are saying the fact that this market has had a correction-free run-up above 1,000 days. Uh, the last time we had anything like this was the 1,100-day-plus run-up without a 10% drop from July 1984 to August of 1987. And I know you're a young guy, but you've definitely heard about what happened later that fall in 1987. Yes, I did. Does that worry you?
6: Not really, because, I'm st- again, it's how you play defensive. It's how if... Technical-wise, I look at the technical analyst every day. I look at the market. I analyze everything. And I know where to put my stops on what I'm trading. Currently, I'm trading Apple. I'm long Apple. So the reason being is today- I You own
0: Apple stock outright or you own the options?
6: I own the options right now.
0: That's a very interesting company in being the biggest market capitalization in the world. It's not in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. For all this stuff you hear about Dow, 17,000, there are people out there who said the Dow could well be above 21 or 22,000 had it you know, it had the foresight to add Apple back in 2007 or 2006 when it put other companies in. Uh, what do you think is the situation with Apple? It's clearly a company with a huge cash balance, but uh, many people are saying that Uh, It's kind of a market unto itself. It's almost a $600 billion market capitalization. Many countries don't have $600 billion in their entire stock markets.
6: Well, we all know that Apple makes great product. We all know that. Uh, Regarding Apple since the pass of their founder, Steve Jobs, they haven't been innovating enough product to make the young generation who spends a lot of their money into buying Apple, especially iPhone five or iPhone 6 or iPhone, whatever iPhone they're gonna suppose come out with, uh, they need to keep that pace to compare with product like Samsung. Personally I own Max, but I don't own iPhone. And people always ask me why. And I say, because I feel that iPhone hasn't reached the full capacity that Samsung pushes. So Apple is a great company. They make great product, it lasts longer. It's it's a good company to own. And I tell people, I think you should buy. This is the best time you have.
0: Let me ask you a fair question, though. There are many in this market, there, there are many people in academics, and you surely see this uh, finishing school, that say, why bother with what you're doing? Uh, no one can beat the market. The best thing you can do is hope to keep your costs low and track the market and not pay as much attention as you do to it every day. Is there something to be said for that?
6: No, not really, um, because this is something I have a passion for, you know? I'm a first generation here in America, and I always had this passion to learn about the stock market, whether I decide to stop trading, whether I'm going to continue, but it's always going to be in the back of my bone. Or one day I say I move back to Africa, I'll still track the stock market. It's just I have a passion about it.
0: How did that happen here? When did you first come to the U.S.?
6: I came to the U.S. in 1996.
0: 1996. And how did you get introduced to the stock market? What was that first taste, that seduction?
6: It was actually, I was working for h Block and I remember I met a gentleman and I was reading a car show magazine and he told me, you know, you're a young man and you're very smart and I like you. And I think you should actually read different magazines. Which magazine were you reading? I was actually reading one of these uh, car magazines. Uh-huh. And then he said, I think you should pick that, that Kiplinger personal finance. I think it's a great magazine for you to read. And I started reading about it and I got so fascinated about how you can take as little as $100, little by little, every week, put in the market, slowly invest in mutual funds, and you can yield at least 8% a year.
0: But that's assuming that past performance is representative of the future. Many people are saying that their last taste of the stock market when it was in 2000 or 2001, that they, until recently, didn't recoup their losses.
6: It depends. A lot of people panic. And when a lot of people panic, It scared a lot of people. A lot of people wasn't prepared for the whole stock market crash. So they took their money when the market was collapsing versus those ones who kept their market. Most people who kept their money in the market, they recoup 100%. And they up more.
0: I understand. But you were what were you twenty six when the, the epic stock market crash happened in two thousand eight and two thousand nine? What what did you reflect back on? Or was there wisdom or guidance or someone you could ask that told you to keep the faith or double down?
6: Well, the first thing was I looked at my portfolio and I say, you know, I started with nothing. And if this is it, this is it. I lost it, but I learned a lot. But I said, what well, what worse can happen?
0: Well, we could have all been in lines eating cat food.
6: Hey, exactly. But this is America. It happened. You live and learn, and you move on. And so one thing less than I learned is I was watching CNBC, and I saw Warren Buffett say, this is the best time to buy. And I said, if this is the guy who's the greatest investor, he said it's the best time to buy. And I'm young, and he's older than me, way older than me. Why not? So I said, I wish I had $100 million because I would buy pretty much everything.
0: Wow. And so what did you do at the bottom of the market?
6: I kept buying. I kept buying. I kept buying, 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 buying. And I'll tell you, until today, I regret I never bought Bank of America. I wish I would have bought Bank of America because I didn't have the money to buy. But if I did, I would have bought at least 20,000 shares of Bank of America because I knew banks will never go bankrupt in this country. The government was always going to bail them out. So
0: having learned all this stuff and having learned it from scratch, you talk back to that, that menial job you had at H&R Block and the revelation in reading Kipps, the financial magazine. What would you advise to other people who are your age or people who are in their 20s who are lucky to get a job out of college? What is the timeless advice you have right now? Clearly, there's some trepidation about getting into this market after it's run up so much. Is there something that you can dispense to your contemporaries?
6: I'll tell people the the young generation who just graduate from college who wants to learn about the market. You know, find a good mentor. That's the key. Find a good mentor, somebody who teach you, who tell you the ins and out about the market. Don't follow these social media about you hear this. Oh, you put your money here and then you're gonna have twenty percent by the end of the year. No, that's bogus. But find a good mentor. Pick up a few investment books that you can read understand the market, realize do you want to be a trader or do you want to be an investor? Because there's a, clearly a difference between an investor and a trader. And once you understand that path, then you can decide, okay, am I going to continue my career as a full-time 9-to-5 or am I going to just pursue, just be an investor in 9-to-5 or I'm also going to start trading part-time, learning a little by little slowly because I have to tell you, Trading is a full-time job. You have to stay on top of the market. You can't just sit back and expect, oh, yeah, I know what. No. Trading is a full-time job. I remember my first three years. I spent minimum 12 hours a day. After my work, I'll come home, read the patterns, analyze everything, and it gets exhaustion. So you get distracted a little bit, but you just got to know. It'll pay off later on.
0: Which begs the question, I think everybody out there is listening to this saying, gosh, I love his enthusiasm. I love his diligence. He's the kind of guy who could balance going to school, keeping a job with benefits, garnishing that salary to save and invest in the stock market. If they don't have the time to do this research, if they don't have the time to do this from scratch, everybody out there, I'm sure I'm asking it on behalf of our wonderful listeners, when are they going to be able to invest in the Abagenis ETF as listed in uh, the Tanzania stock market? (laughs)
6: I don't have one in Tanzania right now. In Tanzania, I'm more focused on real estate because Tanzania is becoming an amazing country. And I highly recommend everybody to visit Tanzania because it's one. A lot of people don't know about Tanzania, but Tanzania is one of the most peaceful countries in Africa. We never had war or anything. And they have many attractions, including safari, Serengeti, Gorongoro, Crater. And the most amazing gift is the Mount Kilimanjaro. So I highly recommend. And now what's happening in Tanzania is they found natural gas and uranium. And on top of that, we have Tanzanite. So we have a lot of companies from America that's going over there to pursue these. Because Africa, as we know, is one of the last untouched
0: you say your homeland found natural gas and uranium, but I know more than anything else, it wants to find you a bride worthy of your royalty. And so may I ask you, may I put you on the spot? Are you still single, sir?
6: Yes, I am. I'm are you open
0: Are you open to unsolicited offers of marriage? Uh, thousands of people are going to listen to this show and be wowed by your investing prowess. Uh, can we put you in touch with people?
6: Yes, you can. Put that was a in touch long pause. That was a yes. long pause. I'm not sure. But not for marriage, not for marriage. I am just, right now, I'm just focusing. I have a few ventures back home that I'm focused on. And wait, wait, not I, for marriage.
0: If you're, if you're a day-trading sugar daddy, I mean, come on.
6: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, they, they, can, uh, they can reach me. Uh, <laughs> just ask me any questions regarding investing. I'll be more than happy to just be honest with them. Uh, not sugar daddy for day-trading.
0: Avagenus. I'll say that. Happy birthday. Thank you so much for joining us today and we look forward to having you on the show as our regular and consistent day trading doorman. Thank you.
6: Thank you sir. Appreciate it.
0: That was Avagenus joining us from Westchester, New York, the day trading doorman. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We look forward to having you back next week. Take care. Our program was recorded at Audio Image Recording in Richmond, Virginia. Our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to the Martin Agency and Virginia Commonwealth University for their support. Check out our website at FullDisclosureRadio.com and on Twitter at FullDRadio. The executive producer of Full Disclosure is Jeffrey Bennett. I'm Robin Farzad.